Wake up. Alicia Bell is the founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate of moms mobilizing money for black and brown women entrepreneurs. She's the deal flow lead for Pipeline Angels, a network of women and femmes. Alicia also advises the PayPal Ventures Black Lives Matter Fund and serves on the board for Black Girl Ventures. For more details, go to www.leishabell.com. Hi, my name is Kimberly Nixon. I'm a Brooklyn native now residing in LA. I'm a wife and a mom and also the founder and managing partner at Open Venture Capital. I started Open Venture Capital after 20 years in consumer and health and wellness brands. I now leverage that experience to help early stage founders as they grow their companies. I really want to make sure that there are equal pathways and access to health and wellness for all of us. We should all be medically rich. Hello, and welcome to Sisters with Ventures, the podcast where we amplify black and brown women who are angel investors. On this show, we will explore what is angel investing, how to become one, and why would you want to be one? We will discuss how the most marginalized women persevered to the very top of the investing spectrum. Whether you're making money moves or barely making money, listen up. I'm your host, Lee Chabelle, co-founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate run by Black and Latinx women who are on a mission to represent ourselves and claim our seats on cap tables. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sisters with Ventures, the podcast where we amplify women of color who are investing, particularly in venture capital. And today I have a very, very special guest. Her name is Kimberly Nixon. Hey. We are live from the City of Angels today, the Techstars studio in Culver City. Yes. Thank you for having us here, Techstars. Thank you, Techstars. It's been so exciting to get to know you. So we met uh, via Pipeline Angels. Pipeline Angels, yeah. um, A very common flow through a lot of uh, my Mm -hmm. women investing friends. And you have expanded your investing journey beyond just angel investing, which we'll cover in this show. Yep. And um, I love talking to women who have multi-experience in different kinds of asset classes <laughs> and all these wonderful things that you're going to share with us today. I'm so excited yep. that you are here to just share in us your story and your journey, um, because I'm sure it will be inspirational for everyone who hears it. And um, I want to know your origin story. I know we're in L.A., but this is yeah. not where you're from. Not Tell at us all. a little bit about you. I am not from L.A., but I am stuck here because stuck. my kids love it. <laughs> <laughs> my kids love it. My husband loves it. We can get to beach and mountains to ski, you know, fairly easily. We just got back from snowboarding. I honestly sometimes can't believe this is my life. So um, so amazing. I, you know, I, I feel really blessed. I yeah. feel really lucky. My dad, my dad tells me all the time that to remember that I worked for it. Mm. And, um, I and that. I appreciate him saying that because I think it's something that black women don't naturally do is remind themselves that they worked. 
they right. worked for it. So, um, so my origin story, I will try to keep it short because <laughs> we don't have all day, but I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Originally, I am the daughter of Jamaican immigrants. And uh, I always bring that up because we talk a lot about almost like the immigrant playbook mm-hmm. and what that looked like for families that were moving to the States and how you think about securing financially, how you think about securing space for your family. And that was through real estate. My dad's a contractor. My mom's a nurse. And, you know, I grew up in dust. I always say that we, <laughs> we were always working on something. My I have one sister and my, my parents don't have any sons. And so I became the son and I became the apprentice. I, you know, got all the questions about types of pliers. I could hang sheetrock by the time I was, you know, 13 or 14. I'm guessing I don't, you know, but um, probably not that far off. And so when I uh, graduated college, I I went through, I would say, a pretty normal um, trajectory for an inner city kid, but that had some academic um, success. And so I was part of a scholarship program. I, um, shout out to Prep for Prep, And I went to private school for my last two years of middle school, and then I went to boarding school for high school. When I graduated college, I went to Wesleyan University. Um, I was probably a year out of school when I bought my first property. Wow. I uh, knew at that point in time it was not going to be in New York because New York was already doing what it do. (laughs) It was already very expensive for someone on a, you know, an entry level salary. Luckily for me, I was following a boy. So I followed a boy down to Maryland <laughs> and um, that boy's not my husband. So I think it, it worked, worked out. out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I followed a boy down to Maryland. I fell in love with, um, with, uh, with Baltimore. I love Baltimore. And um, I started buying property there. Mm. And even my first property, I, I fell in love with a marble fireplace like a dum dum, and uh, basically that was the only thing that was going to stand. <laughs> that's the only thing that's probably original at this point. Um, and so I made a lot of mistakes early. Yeah. I, you know, I was very much caught up in what the the picture of something could be, what something could look like. But I was lucky. I had my dad, and my dad spent a lot of time doing a lot of work on that first property for me. Um, and between my mom and my dad and their their kind of guidance, um, I was able to make some better decisions as I continued to to purchase real estate. This is actually something that I've talked about um, on, in other forums as well, because there is a reduction of friction to taking risk when you see your parents do something. Mm. So a lot of times when I talk to women and black women and other women of color about things like real estate, what I hear a lot is what about when the toilet breaks at midnight and your tenant calls you? And I'm like, well, I've been a landlord's kid most of my life and we've never gotten a midnight call about a toilet because most people are asleep. So (laughs) even if they are going to have the problem, they're probably going to have it at 6 a.m. And, um, and if you do get a call at midnight about a toilet, you call right. a twenty-four hour plumber and you handle yeah, it. Come so, visit. You know, uh, so I, I, I really appreciated the early visibility and almost the opportunity to try before I buy a lifestyle, um, and then deciding that that was something that I was willing to sign up for. So I owned real estate alongside my professional career. I started as a management consultant, moved on to become the head of strategy at of, for footwear at Under Armour. 
when Under Armour was still very much on its on its growth path. Um, at that time, it was a very entrepreneurial environment. So for the eight years that I was at Under Armour, I held roles across strategy, connected fitness. When we had acquired a handful of brands, my fitness pal, Matt, my fitness and Amando, we were also building a homegrown app called Under Armour Record. I launched our first smart shoe. Um, I ended up taking, uh, as I was working through that role, I was traveling a lot to launch the shoe. I spent a lot of time with our international teams and it ended up uh, taking a role as the head of marketing for emerging markets. That took me and my little family to Panama for a couple of mm -hmm. years. And then when I left Under Armour, I was really being very strategic about what experience I did not yet have. And it was P&L management. I really wanted to make sure that I was owning a P&L end-to-end. Um, I took a GM role here in L.A. at Manduka Yoga. So by the time I left uh, Manduka, I had product marketing, sales, and P&L management experience. Rolled all of that into a COO role at a startup called Health House, also here in L.A. And between my Manduka role and my Health House role, those were PE-backed and VC-backed. And so that was the time when I started to really think about the power of private capital and how it can really inform and change the trajectory of a startup, of a small business. Um, and I wanted to, to be part of that change, but for the businesses that I really wanted to back and that I believed in. So, so let's back up into you bought your first property. How many properties did you ultimately acquire? Oh, boy. Um, there were some sales, <laughs> but I don't generally believe in selling properties. So at the time of this recording, it's probably around five. Great, great. And so what do you think taught you the most about building wealth? So I, I think when you grow up without wealth, without real um, visibility to what wealth looks like. And it takes a while to really, if you, if you do live in the hood, it takes a while for you right. to figure out what wealth really looks like. Every step of the way, you think it's a three series, then you think it's a five series, then you think it's a seven <laughs> series, then you realize it has nothing to do with BMW at all. Right. right? right. So, <laughs> so I got real exposure to wealth when I started to go to private school, but the path really starts with how do I not be poor? Like the first step is how do I afford, or at least for me, it was, you know, I want this thing and, and my parents basically need to make a, a decision between yeah. this thing or this thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so what I first acknowledged as a desire for me was a, I never wanted to have to choose. I wanted to do whatever right. it is I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And again, to my parents' credit, even though wealth building wasn't language they were using, they were absolutely teaching me how to prioritize, how to cover your expenses and how to grow money, how to think about mm. putting each dollar to work. Um, and so that was the start of wealth building as a as a language, as a strategy. I even when I saw really large displays of wealth, it was never about buying the nicest bag, having the biggest house, any of those things. I think about money as um, a vehicle to, frankly, to more money, right? So like, I'm like, if I, if I take this dollar, can I make this dollar become $7? Yeah. Can I make $7 become $50? Can I make $50 become a hundred dollars and at what velocity? Right. And so that is a, that was a constant for me 
it's a game. It's gamified. And I continue to think that way now. So in order to be an angel investor, um, you have to be accredited, right? Yeah. So that means you have to have not only earned the income, you've had to sustain the income. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's you are you are touching on one of my hot spots. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so you had a career, mm-hmm. right, with the income. You had um, these real estate properties generating income and maybe not always generating income because real estate is... They don't always generate income. They don't always generate. (laughs) Um, You know, what was some of your sustaining wealth strategies over time? Well, first, before we even go into my specific strategies, I can't tell you how often, how frustrated I get with the definition for accreditation and for accredited investor status because it so it favors it absolutely favors dual income households, yes. which Black women are amongst the least right of right. having dual income households. Like right. we are singler than single, <laughs> <laughs> very single. Because if I listen to this podcast, if I had to, um, if I had to, like you know, kind of look at all of my my girlfriends of around the same age and 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 yeah. look at what percentage are married versus not. It is definitely leaning towards the not married. And that doesn't necessarily mean not coupled or paired, but not married and thereby not being able to apply the definition the way that accredited investor status requires. That's number one. Number two, it is no secret that people of color and particularly black people build their wealth first and foremost in their primary home. And so even though there are a lot of conversations about whether or not that's the right strategy or wrong strategy, it is what it is today. And so for the accredited investor status to exclude your primary residence from your net worth calculation feels targeted. And I don't know how else to say that, but it feels... that's where most of... The wealth is. Of course. Yeah. And if you're in an inner city and you bought a house for $200,000 and by luck of the draw, you know, right. an appreciation five years later, it's worth a million dollars. That should get you to accredited status. Right. Because, it, it, yeah, right. because it is what it it's is. An because asset you, that you it's own. an asset. You've made the investment. You right. put your dollars at risk. Right. You put your dollars at work. Yes. And so for you to be, you know, it, not able to, number one, buy a second property as when when the property value goes up because you may not may not be able to afford it and yeah. then be excluded from an entire asset class because of it. I understand the protection language. You know, you want people to be savvy investors and you don't yeah. want people getting scammed. But I'm just going to say it needs to be revisited. And and they are looking at revisiting it in both ways for better or for worse. They're actually thinking about increasing the guidelines. So right now it's two or three hundred dollars, three hundred thousand dollars. If they increase that by just one hundred thousand, it wipe out ninety percent of investors of color. Like it would be everybody, everybody. <laughs> let me ask, like, well, two dollars more. We out. We out. Yeah, we're barely, exactly. We're barely scraping it. Barely. And um, it is also a form of oppression Absolutely. and systemic racism. Absolutely. And that's why we always have to have activism. Yes. And all that we do, and yeah. all that we are. And this is a great segue to talk about your activism into angel investing. Yes. So tell me about that journey. Yeah. So angel investing for me, you know, I I look at a lot of things, as I mentioned before, I'm always thinking about how to make $1 into 10 or, you know, whatever equation you want to use. But 
I, I also think about that from a level of effort and from where my competitive advantage is. And so when I started to think about angel investing, I was thinking about how to put money to work in a way that didn't require it to be um to require my hands quite as much as real estate required my Mm -hmm. hands as I was acquiring property. And I still wanted it to be passive. But the thing that I loved about real estate is that if I could just be, if I was just, you know, really diligent, if I did my research, if I was able to apply some of both my understanding of real estate from being a, a child that had grown up in the game and also my business acumen, I could, I could find little edges as I was building a portfolio. I wanted to do the same thing from an angel investing perspective. And when I started out, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, you know, and and it, not only did I not know what I was doing, but I was, I didn't have great deal flow. I mean, this is 10 plus years ago. Yeah. I was just like, oh, a friend of a friend said this thing. And the dangerous thing about that is that when I talk to women now about this, they'll say something very similar. They'll say, well, I invested in this thing and it didn't go well. And so they're not willing to take any more risk. Right. But I was building a portfolio for risk. I was literally putting aside a sum of money that I was willing to lose every right. year. Right. right. And that sum of money, because I'd already been spending a ton of time budgeting and figuring all those things out. But once I was willing to lose it, it, it set the tone for how much risk I was willing to take. And I, I also called it education. I was like, well, if I, I'm either going to, I'm a winner or learn, right? Like one or the other. Right. And so my angel investing path started that way. Now I lost some money. So, <laughs> <laughs> so after I lost some money, I was like, let's focus on the education part of this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and found Pipeline Angels. And so that was really helpful in terms of thinking through investment thesis and, you know, honing in on a specific sector that I wanted to tackle. And I had already spent some time, I know you know Deborah Owens as well. So Deborah and I had already spent some time talking about public market sides of things and, yeah. you know, using your your areas of interest or your industries of focus as a competitive advantage. And so I was now starting to pull together all the things I know about being a disciplined investor from a real estate perspective, being a public market investor from my time with Deborah, being an angel investor from Pipeline Angels and, you know, and working that into both a thesis for the types of companies I wanted to invest in, but also a an, an approach for what type of investor I wanted to be and how I wanted to diligence deals. Um, And so, I, you know, for for anyone listening, I think angel investing is a little bit of testing and iterating and the, the, you know, I can I can kind of giggle about losing money because they weren't large sums of money. They were, you know, two thousand here, fifteen hundred, five thousand. And it's it's both meant to be a an opportunity to support a early stage company as they are trying to get, you know, their first product out or trying to get into their first retailer. Um, it we are replacing friends and family round for many early stage uh, startups and founders who don't have friends and family money. And so if we're replacing those dollars, I wanted to A, learn while I was doing it and B, as I said earlier, add value. So let's talk about um, you wrote your angel checks and then you're like, I want to do more. I want to have a greater impact. And you decided to start a fund. Um, tell us a little bit about your fund, 
your thesis and what you're focused on? Boy, was this a journey. And it, you know, it's only, it's like a four or five year old journey, but it feels Mm -hmm. like I've been on this journey for quite some time. Um, With my last two roles, being PE-backed and VC-backed, I spent a lot of time with boards, with my boards, you know, and I spent a lot of time with the folks that were either running those funds or uh, closely integrated. And so I was asking questions. I was I was asking to sit in on meetings. I was asking to see deal flow. I was asking to see other people's decks because I was busy fundraising in my last role um, as part of that startup team. And so I was I was learning on the job. I was very, very open and transparent about the fact that eventually I wanted to do some private investing of my own. And, you know, the messages were, they, everyone was very receptive to this, but it also became very clear that, you know, for, for larger PE funds, you need a million dollars. <laughs> you need a million dollars minimum, you know, to mm-hmm. get into some of the, the, the highest performing PE funds. That's if they let you in or have space. Um, for, you know, some of the VC funds that I was, I was looking at, uh, there was more of a, there was more of an appetite for letting people in on a deal by deal basis. And I had learned enough at this point to understand that I wanted a portfolio approach. I didn't want to, you know, just get access on a deal by deal basis. Um, so I had, I had decided to start the fund in part because I was, ticked off. I was ticked off about the idea that I needed a million dollars of free cash flow in order to yeah. start to invest in this asset class. We've already talked about the how ticked off I am about the accredited investor status. And so I'm like, this is ripe for disruption, right? Like I have yeah. the exp- experience. If I can add value, I can get to the deal flow. If I can get to the deal flow and I can get enough people with smaller checks to write checks as part of my uh, fund, then we can be early in some of these really incredible deals. I think we need to define really the difference between PE and VC. Sure. For our audience, because these are two different games. They're cousins. They're cousins. but But they're very different in how you can even play in it. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So for PE funds, um, and actually PE, I would say, is even starting to shift a little bit in terms of where they invest today than they than previously. But generally speaking, PE, private equity funds, PE stands for private equity. Private equity funds are looking to take large stakes in a private business um, with the intent of j- building on, a, on top of a growth driver to help uh, drive a higher valuation for that company, uh, mainly from an operator perspective. So they may come in, let's say it's a plumbing business. They may come in and buy 80% of the plumbing business and change out the management team and say, you know, with technology, we can, um, quadruple the amount of revenue we can do through this plumbing business versus what you individual plumbing owner can do with your um, with your existing team. And once we've quadrupled the value of the business, we can then either sell a stake or sell our entire stake at that higher valuation. Venture is different in that the goal of a venture fund is to build 
a portfolio of companies and they are at different stages. You can have very early stage companies, which would be C, pre-seed, seed, series A. And those are, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it to the audience to, to Google a little bit here, but those are basically defined by the valuation of the company at that, at that period of time. And, um, and so venture companies are taking several bets in terms of which one of these companies are going to um, see a 10x growth or something of that nature. They absolutely anticipate that a percentage of the companies in their portfolio will fail or will not grow at a exponential rate. And so when you're building a full portfolio, you're taking all of these things into account. You're taking concentration risk. If you're investing in a certain industry or certain types of industry, you're taking um, geopolitical risk into account. You don't have an operator seat. So you're really trying to make sure that as you are um, getting ready to write this check, you have diligence and thought through all of the potential areas for both upside and downside. And even still, you know that there is an opportunity for happenstance in the middle. Um, and so you're you're constantly looking at that, that each of those companies and trying to make sure that as you add new companies to your portfolio, you're balancing that out for your overall performance. And I think that is the aspirational aspect of VC that I love is that you can get a portion of an early stage small company and help them build, right? And I think, you know, private equity is really not accessible to most people. <laughs> like, it, it's not a game. <laughs> and I think in VC, even though it, it is difficult to get into, um, the ability to discover entrepreneurial talent, the ability to produce and scale and build together with skill sets. You have a lot of various skill sets mm-hmm. that you're leveraging in your fund. Yeah right, that you're using to help scale the portfolio companies. And I think the breadth and how we can use our talent in this industry is so beautiful. Yes. And there's not enough people like you in the industry with your perspective, right? Well, thank you for that. And I and I hope part of the, the reason that we're having this conversation and that we, I think we both seek to have these conversations is to do just that, to be right. bell ringers, to remind folks that have incredible careers yes and lots of experience yes that there are other avenues and different ways to leverage that experience and put it to work yes. and so earlier when i said turn one dollar into seven and seven into 50 i would say the same thing is true about your years of experience how do you turn five years of experience into something more than your paycheck today you know what else are you using that experience to do? Who else are you serving with it? If, if, if not just yourself and your own bank account, like are there other ways that you can really use that to the benefit of your community or to your portfolio if you're choosing to build one? So let's talk about why it's so important to have Black women on these cap tables, yes. Black women as limited partners, Black yes. women as equity holders, Black women as owners, um, I know you're very passionate about this topic. I would yep. love for you to tell us about what you're doing. Yes, thank you so much for that. Um, so as part of the fund, obviously a big chunk of starting a fund 
is fundraising, is, is raising the capital in order to deploy into these early stage companies. And I made a decision very early on that I wanted this fund to have a significant number of Black women on the cap table. So I called the initiative Groundswell and I do it for two reasons. One, and I've written about this and I'm happy to share it with anyone that that um, would like the newsletter. But um, the first reason is something I call, and not I call, one of my portfolio companies, one founder calls positivity bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so I invested in a company also called Open. And it is uh, their first location will be here in L.A. in Venice and one of their co-founders, Manoj Diaz, he talks a lot about positivity bias and the importance of seeing, feeling, and reminding yourself of all the positive things that yep. that come from this type of activity. And so wh- what I've noticed is there's a lot of media, there's a lot of coverage of um, disparities in, uh, in house value or appraisal values for black families versus white families. There's a lot of coverage of the paycheck disparities, how much black women make versus their white male counterparts. There's a lot of coverage of um, differences in mortgage rates, in redlining, in the, you know, the fractional amount of wealth that exists in black families versus white families. Can I add single black mothers are approaching a negative net worth? Yes. Yes. So negative, like negative, negative. We were at zero before. Now we're negative. (laughs) This is how bad it is. That means that means that even if like three single black mothers are doing their work and doing their job. Right. To to get y'all the positive. There's like. (laughs) We just rolling back. 50 that are moving in the wrong direction, not very likely not of their own doing. Right. Right, right. So there are all these 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 uh, reinforcements of a negative perspective. Yes. Yes. And I loved the way Manoj talked about positivity bias. And I was like, we need that. Yes. We need a story Mm. that is beyond the fact that we don't make as much as everybody else. We know that part. We got it. Yeah. Several times over. We got it. So if we're not making as much as everyone else, then it is even more important that we put that money to work immediately. We put it to work for the long term. And so um, on top of the fact that we don't make as much as our white male counterparts, we also generally have the larger burden. So there's someone's tuition, there's someone's medical bill, there's someone's tax. There you go. And so if if those two things exist, if you're not making as much and you're not saving as much, then how are you ever going to how are you ever going to build wealth, right? right. And so the, the whole point of Groundswell and the whole point of being very, very thoughtful and strategic about bringing 50 women on is that to get 50 women in, that probably means I have to talk to 200, maybe right. 300. And I'm, I'm actually less concerned. Don't take this the wrong way. I still need y'all to invest. But I'm less concerned about whether you write the check. I'm more concerned about whether we're having the conversation. Mm. And I often say, yes. if a Black woman is approached first about something, it's probably a scam. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is actually an attempt to approach an audience first to be very um, strategic and and focused on saying, hey, I'm talking directly to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. When I say I would like for you to be a part of this effort and that I'm uniquely qualified to get us to this place, um, and that this is not a scam and that I'll be doing this for the long haul. So 
um, you know, I, I want this to be an opportunity for all of us, not not a handful of us. Right. Right. I love that. We're quoting that opportunity for all of us. So um, our time has gone by extremely fast here. And I would love for you to reflect as you are a grown, adulting, magical Black woman. Um, what would you have told your younger self? We were talking about this a little bit before, and I was like, ooh, that poor girl. So <laughs> <laughs> She made it through. She, she, was, she was great, but she, she needed, like, some some boundaries like (laughs) (laughs) we didn't have that term in the 80s no we didn't have we didn't have all of that um my younger self was a workaholic Mm -hmm. and my this age self you know absolutely struggles with it a bit but I would tell her to relax Mm. it'll be okay it'll work itself out um and you know, the one thing I am grateful to her for is her resilience, and she stuck through a lot. She she got through a lot, and so I I am I actually talk to her quite a bit. But she mm-hmm. is, I'm grateful to her, and and she can relax now. Like <laughs> we're gonna be okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Kimberly Nixon, it's been a pleasure. Thank having you so much you. for having me. This was so fun. Let's do our group hug. You are amplifying our voices. You're investing in our causes. Absolutely. You're getting Black women on cap tables. Um, and we admire and appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Cheers. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show. Please subscribe. Tell a friend. Check us out. Let the world know. You can find out more information about this podcast at LeeChabelle.com. And remember, be an angel, invest.